Final speaker in this session, and remember there will be a panel afterwards to talk through these issues, and I'm sure there are one or two opinions in the room um, to ventilate this, is Leslie Russell, whose doctorate is in actually in biochemistry, but has spent most of her career working in policy and in health policy in particular. She works at the Menzies Institute, uh, Menzies Centre for Health Policy at uh, the University of Sydney. A uh, broad range of interests from mental health through to indigenous health and others, and also has an abiding interest in American politics and the American healthcare system, and has a lot of experience there, um, and is one of our leading analysts. And it's how we apply this inequity, inequality story, which um, we have skirmished with with the previous two speakers, uh, to health, healthcare, and indeed the people we look after. Please welcome Leslie Russell. Thank you. I wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today and to thank them for the guardianship of knowledge and the environment. And I guess you've heard the hard-edged economists. I'm the soft, still vaguely red at the edges, socialist. So I'm going to talk to you about life expectancy. It's the traditional way we measure the effectiveness of our healthcare system and the value we get for the healthcare dollars we spend. So often we hear the comparison of life expectancy in Australia, which is about 83 years, with that of the United States, which is some four years less, despite the fact that the US spends almost twice as much on per person per year as Australia. It's an open question, actually, as to whether life expectancy is the best measure of the effectiveness and value of a healthcare system. And it's interesting to ponder over how you write policies that deal with expectancies. What happens if a policymaker's expectations about the length and quality of life are different to those of the community of, a, of an individual? But that's rather a philosophical question, and I can't... So I'm going to leave philosophical questions aside to look at some more realistic challenges today about what the data tell us about life expectancy and what's important and why, and I hope that you'll see the links with what I say to what Peter and Richard have already said and how do we address these. And in particular, I hope I'm going to have time to talk about what I think that nurses and midwives might do about these issues. So what does the data tell us? The take-out lesson is that Australia's average life expectancy hides many different stories for many different groups. It's always amazing to me that we're so accepting of those numbers on the screen in front of you, so accepting of these stark differences. Perhaps we ought to talk about these numbers in different terms that are really much more hard-hitting. So, for example, the average life expectancy of people who live in Burke in New South Wales is about the same as people who live in North Korea. Maybe that would make the politicians sit up and take notice. Moreover, the data shows that many, perhaps most Australians, spend the last 10 years of their lives in something less than good health. And this is a situation that's not just in Australia. It's common in many developed countries, such as the United States and the United Kingdom. And I, I'm going to use a lot of US data because I've done a lot of work in this area. The racial divides in the US are really quite shocking. And again, the averages hide the real issues. 
While the average American lives almost 79 years, this figure varies by state. It's 65, it's 6.5 years higher in Hawaii than it is in Mississippi. The life expectancy of black males in Washington, D.C. is less than 70 years. And the lowest life expectancy of all is for Native Americans who live in North Dakota. It's 68 years. But there's an interesting story here that we'll return to later. Look at the life expectancy for Hispanics. This is not a particularly well-off population, so their access to health insurance is poor, although improved by Obamacare. But in Massachusetts, which has effectively had Obamacare through Romneycare for some years now, the life expectancy of Hispanics is 87 years. I bet Donald Trump doesn't know that. <laughs> Why are these disparities important? And this was the topic that Richard got us to think about. They're important because they have a devastating impact on individuals and then families, but they also affect society as a whole. There are substantial costs involved to both the healthcare system and welfare budgets and to other parts of the economy. People who have the worst health care still usually use the healthcare system, and they use it at the most expensive end in hospitals. And they're least able to be contributors to society and to the economy. These costs have not been well measured in Australia. You can infer them from reports about diabetes and impact of chronic diseases. But I did find one report from the National Centre for Social and Economic Modelling from 1998. I couldn't find anything more recent. But in 1998, it was estimated that $3 billion in healthcare costs and $1.2 billion in disability pensions per year would have been saved if the health status of the whole population was equal to that of the most advantaged 20%. So 20 years on, those figures have got to be substantially more. Another study looked at the issues this way. If each Australian all-cause mortality decile, that's each one-tenth of the population, was a hypothetical nation of about 2.4 million people, the first decile, or the first nation, would be far and away the healthiest country in the world and the first three nations would still, all of them, be healthier than Japan. So just think what could be achieved if we could get our least healthy decile brought up to the healthiest level. When we talk about our least healthiest decile, obviously we think instantly of our indigenous peoples. Although indigenous Australians account for only about 2.5% of the population, they account for about a third of the total mortality gap between Australia and Japan. Elimination of the difference in life expectancy between Indigenous Australians and non-Indigenous Australians would add about, add about five months to the total life expectancy of everyone. So we are already a country where good health and access to life's opportunities comes down to postcode. Growing equalities is going to make this worse. When we talk about health and well-being, we're clearly talking about more than hospitals and doctors and prescription pads, and dare I say it, we're talking about more than nurses and midwives, important though these might be. It's estimated that between one-third and one-half of life expectancy, of life expectancy gaps 
are explained by differences in the social determinants of health. These include the obvious physical things like housing, clean water and air, healthy workplaces, transportation services and safe communities. Education employment and employment provide income and make housing and food and healthcare affordable. And here I'm picking up on some of the themes you've already heard. Generally, those with the lowest health status also have the lowest educational and literacy levels. Poor education means a person is less likely to attain secure and well-paid employment, and this leads to poverty and other predictors of ill health. Poverty has a major impact on health and premature death. The greater the length of time that people live in disadvantaged circumstances, the greater the risk for ill health. People who are unemployed and their families experience a much greater risk of premature death. The risks are higher in regions where there's widespread unemployment and when the risks relate to the psychological and the financial effects such as debt. And these health effects begin when people first feel that their jobs are under threat prior to becoming unemployed. Job insecurity or very unsatisfactory employment can be as harmful as unemployment, with increasing effects on mental health, heart disease, and the risk factors for heart disease. The context of people's lives depends on their health. And so blaming individuals for having poor health or crediting them for good health is arguably not particularly appropriate. And individuals are unlikely to be able to control directly many of the things that impact on their health. So that's why government interventions are important. There are non-physical issues that are particular to the individual that include things like social support networks, culture, customs and traditions and beliefs of the family and the community, sexual identity, disability, exposure to violence, stress, discrimination, racism, and bullying. And today I want to explore just two of these determinants because they, I think they're keys to addressing disparities in life expectancies. The first is education. There's an incredibly strong link between education and health. This is not just about the obvious. It's true, better educated people get better jobs, they have better housing, they can afford better health care but it's also about the fact that they're enabled to make better life decisions. And there's a very um, remarkable situation where there are positive effects on health of having greater control over your life. This graph shows the relationship between life expectancy and education for Dutch people aged 65. So it's kind of like um, the data that we were presented with about life expectancy when you retire that's linked to um, income. The magnitude of the relationship between education and health varies across conditions, but it's generally quite large. More educated people have lower morbidity from the most common acute and chronic diseases, things like heart conditions, stroke, emphysema, diabetes, ulcers. They're less likely to smoke and be overweight their physical and mental functioning is better. 
And Australian data from the wonderful Andrew Lee, what would we do without him, show that there's a five-year difference in life expectancy between people with 12 or less years of education and those with more than 12 years of education. As a warning sign, a recent American study showed that life expectancy for white Americans with a less than high school diploma is actually decreasing. It's, it's thought that this might be due to issues like obesity, high rates of smoking, and the abuse, the abuse of prescription medicines. But that predictor that our children will not live as long and as well as we will is actually coming true amongst certain segments of the population in the United States. So I want to turn to social justice and issues such as racism. Our knowledge of the pathways and biological mechanisms that connect social factors such as racism, bullying, violence and stress with health has increased exponentially. It's an important issue in Australia when it comes to closing the gap, especially given the overrepresentation of Indigenous people in the justice system. The Lewitcher Institute did a survey that found that 97% of Indigenous people had experienced racism multiple times, and over half these people reported feelings of psychological distress, a risk factor for anxiety and depression. Indigenous Australians experience high or very high levels of psychological distress at rates that are three times those for the rest of the population. And I wonder, to, on a day like today, in a time like this, how true that is also for people who live in the Muslim community who are also facing discrimination. On the positive side, it should be said that there are a number of protective social factors that offset or can offset disadvantage. These include social, social and cultural supports, self-esteem and resilience. And they're exemplified by what's known as the Hispanic paradox. Remember I talked about the life expectancy of Hispanics in America? Medical experts have known for some time that Hispanics living in the United States have on average a better life expectancy than non-Hispanic whites. They also have lower rates of infant mortality. This is despite the fact that on average they are poorer, they have harsher jobs, they have less access to education and healthcare services. But they have relatively healthy lifestyles and they have a social cohesion and a support network. And this is seen particularly in the way they nurture young mothers and children. However, this effect is seen primarily amongst first generation immigrants and it starts to fade in second and third generation Hispanics. We also know that low income has less impact if basic needs such as housing, food, and healthcare are met. So some low income countries with strong social policies do very well and have life expectancies to match first world countries. So Cuba is such an example. The life expectancy there is 78.5 years. And just this morning I read in the newspaper that Venezuela, which is facing a terrible crisis at the moment, infant mortality has al is already on the decline. So these factors come into play very early. There's also a study from the, just out from the United States that suggests that social spending, not medical spending, is the key to health. The US has a ragged social safety net. It spends only 56 cents 
on social services for every dollar that's spent on health care. In contrast, the major OECD countries spend around $1.70 for every dollar spent on health care. So what can Australia do to address the factors that impact on life expectancy? And I think the answers fall into two categories. High-level reforms to current practices and policies, and because I've worked in politics as long as I have, I always have a more pragmatic approach to balance off the idealism where smaller changes can still make a difference. So let's talk about a whole-of-government approach. Health and well-being is about issues that are well beyond the purview of the Department of Health. So ideally, a whole-of-government approach is needed. The point about social spending highlights the interconnectedness of government policies. If welfare and pension payments decrease, then there are consequences for the health care budget, and usually at the acute end of the spectrum. Ironically, the reasons these whole-of-government approaches are so hard to introduce is not because they cost money. They don't. But they do require real changes in policy and political culture and the breaking down of silos and power bases. So health in all policies has been defined as an approach to public policies across sectors that systematically takes into account the health and health systems implications of decisions, seeks synergies and avoids harmful health impacts in order to improve population health and well-being. This, was, this approach was adopted by South Australia in 2010, largely as a result of Ilona Kickbush, who was then the government's thinker in residence, something I aspire to be one day, thinker in residence. In 2011, the health lens was applied to all of South Australian government's policy priorities, including areas such as growing advanced manufacturing and realising the potential of the mining boom. That said, and whilst the details of this policy approach are still on the government's website, I'm not sure how well implemented it is these days. And that just goes to highlight the need for ongoing, high-level commitment and champions. The National Prevention Council was created through the Affordable Care Act, through Obamacare. It's made up of 22 federal departments and agencies, and there's also an expert advisory group. Together, they developed the National Prevention Strategy, which outlines how all levels of government, academia, healthcare, professionals, business, schools, and communities can work together to tackle prevention and to achieve better health for all Americans. Um, if you look on the website of the US Surgeon General, there are annual reports of progress against set targets and goals, and it makes really interesting reading about what can be done by different ways of thinking. Just one of the many examples is what's called the Partnership for Sustainable Communities. This involves three federal agencies, Housing and Urban Development, the Department of Transportation and the Environmental Protection Agency, which promote affordable, equitable, sustainable communities through coordination of their policies with initiatives, that, things like walkable neighbourhoods. But if all that highfalutin stuff is just too hard, then here are some more pragmatic approaches. And, and ironically, these are the ones that have costs involved. But often they can be offset by savings especially if policymakers are willing to see the big picture. 
I've listed some of my favourite policies here, the ones I'm particularly keen on. You'll note that there's a focus on early interventions with children and families and on taking health services and health care services to places where people spend most of their time because I think that's where you get the best value for money and the biggest returns on your investment. So the Nurse Family Partnership was developed in the US but introduced here particularly into Indigenous communities by Nicola Roxon. It focuses on first-time low-income mothers through home visits by trained nurses and it has a very strong evidentiary base. The program has been shown to have long-lasting effects that reduce child abuse and neglect. Um, children are less likely to be hospitalised with injuries, less likely to have behavioural problems at school, less likely to have depression, anxiety and substance abuse by age 12, and there's a reduction in criminal behaviour by parents. I'll skip to the school nurses program. Um, there's some really fascinating data on this from a, uh, a state, from Kentucky in the United States, which is not known as the most progressive state, but they do have a really terrific school nurses program. Um, they, school nurses don't just help with health crises, kids' medication needs and bullying. Evaluation data from states like Kentucky show that they prevent absenteeism, but they actually boost educational achievements. And finally, I'd, I'll talk about the Royal Flying Doctor Pit Stop Program, which is a great example of taking health and prevention services to the workplace like the mining areas of Western Australia. We all know that men take better cares of, of their cars than they do of their bodies. So this program is, uh, aims to engage men in their health by likening areas of body to body parts in a car. You know, you give your car an oil change, so what have you done that's the equivalent of an oil change and have you checked the carburetor lately? The environment of the pit stop stations is non-medical and non-threatening, but there is a bit of peer pressure involved, probably when it comes to having a prostate examination. And I guess the best buy for my money in Australia, something that we could do right now, would be more community health workers and more Aboriginal health workers. These frontline public health workers have a close understanding of the communities in which they work and they generally share the language and the culture. Because they have trust and relationships, they can act as advocates and intermediaries between health and social services and the community and facilitate access to those services and improve the quality and the cultural competence of service delivery. Community health workers also build individual and community capacity by increasing health knowledge and self-sufficiency through a range of activities such as outreach, community education, informal counselling, social support and advocacy. And finally, so what's your role in the new world order? Nurses and midwives are well placed to know what's needed beyond clinical services to deliver improved health. And I like to distinguish between health and healthcare. You are also able to interpret the needs that patients may not be willing to talk about and to have insights into family circumstances. The real challenge, I suspect, comes not in knowing what to do, but in finding the resources to undertake these increased responsibilities. 
Too often the barriers to action are issues such as scope of practice and who pays. Somehow we need to get beyond 20th century turf wars and financing issues and the siloing of responsibilities for the health of the population. It's a suitable and very necessary challenge for 2016. So over to you. I'm interested in your ideas about what you could do as individuals and as an organisation to make some of the needed changes to improve life expectancy and the quality of life. Thank you. Thank you.